It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Four, seven, seven, two. Two. I need a bus. Eli, I need a wall. Eli, I need a wall. Shots fired. Fugitive task force, Central. Fugitive task force. We have shots fired at MOS. We have one U.S. Marshal shot, one perp down. Put a rush on the bus. Welcome to Chasing Evil. I'm Chris Godzik. Today we're talking about the manhunt and apprehension of Andre K. Sterling. The deputy marshals hoped he'd go quietly. Andre Sterling had other ideas. With us today are five of the deputy marshals and one of the NYPD detectives who faced off with him on December 4th, 2020. Three of my guests were shot. One of them five times. Get ready for the most candid, honest, and detailed conversation as we put the Andre Sterling case under a microscope. And it's because of our ability to have open discussions that our friends in the Marshal Service at the Office of General Counsel would like you to know U.S. Marshal's True Crime Podcast is produced with the cooperation of the United States Marshal Service and contains interviews with current and retired employees as well as other persons. Opinions, positions, and views expressed by any of them may not reflect the official views, positions, or policies of the U.S. Marshal Service. On November 20th, 2020, Massachusetts State Trooper John Lennon makes a routine traffic stop in Hyannis, Cape Cod, during which Andre Sterling shoots Trooper Lennon. The bullet goes through his hand and is fortunately stopped by his vest. Sterling flees the scene and disappears. Along with others, the people in this room tracked him down. We won't be using names today, but we will be using numbers. Later in the episode, we'll discuss the stack, which is the formation the marshals use to enter residences. The number we give each person today will correspond to their position in which they line up in the formation. That'll be for Deputy Marshals 1 through 6. And then there's number 10. Number 10 is our NYPD detective who is supervising the perimeter. You'll also hear other members of law enforcement being referred to as TFOs, or Task Force Officers. Those are people that are not Deputy Marshals, but they've been deputized and they work under the auspices of the Task Force. Thanks for being here, everyone. Let's get right to it. We'll start with number one. Tell us about the Regional Fugitive Task Force and what kind of cases you guys get. Yeah, so here um, in New York City and all RFTFs, we go after the worst of the worst, the most violent fugitives. Um, In New York City, we cover, uh, through the NYPD, our greatest partner here, we cover all uh, homicide cases for the city. Every uh, homicide case in which there is a fugitive or an outstanding perpetrator that case is delegated uh, mm-hmm. to the task force. So That's you have you have NYPD, you have you have ICE, you have <clears throat> state troopers, you have uh, other other marshals assigned to other districts. You've got a lot of people working under this umbrella of the regional fugitive task force, right? Yes. The fugitive hunting. This is your bread and butter. Yes, we uh, 
we're, we're quiet about it. Uh, we we want to be reserved, but uh, we're the best at it. So let's start at the beginning, number five. Tell us, what, what did you know on the day? Who is Andre Sterling? On the evening of November 21st of 2020, about quarter to nine, I got a call from the supervisor of the Fugitive Task Force in Massachusetts who told me that we were looking for the guy who shot John Lennon. Who, my impression was we had already caught that guy, but this was a new John Lennon and <laughs> a new guy who shot him. You guys don't have to muffle it. If he, if he delivers a good one, you got you know, give him props. He told me that they had had a shooting uh, late the previous evening up near Cape Cod, which I'm told is fairly unusual for Cape Cod. It was a car stop. As the trooper was approaching the car, unprovoked, no hesitation, lit the kid up. The kid had been on the job for about six months, this trooper, who responded with extraordinary heroism. Uh, they then fled from the vehicle. And the investigation started right there at that vehicle. Okay. It's been how many days before you were called in? We were called the following evening. They identified their wanted subject, Andre K. Sterling, who has at least five AKAs that we know of, uh, six or seven dates of birth, six or seven uh, social security numbers, rap sheets in Massachusetts, Florida, and Wyoming, and an active warrant in Wyoming. All of it was narcotic stuff, a lot of marijuana trafficking and now for the attempted murder of a uh, state trooper. So what they told me was after fleeing the vehicle, Andre Sterling had gotten hold of another vehicle in Massachusetts. The vehicle had traveled south into New York to the city of Mount Vernon, which is a small city in lower Westchester County, right on the border of the Bronx. It's in the area that my team covers. So they told me the vehicle was in Mount Vernon and it was parked. They had a known location for it. So. That was pretty exciting to us. So I called a couple of the members of my team, and we responded to the area. Not really knowing what we were looking at. I mean, we knew this was a guy who had shot a cop. We didn't know much about his background at the time. Uh, since the vehicle had been sitting for so long, my thought process was, one, maybe the adrenaline dump finally wore off, and he's parked in the vehicle asleep. But by the time we got down there, which was closer to midnight, the vehicle was observed in Connecticut, and route back to Massachusetts where it was stopped by the state police. Uh -huh. This led us to an associate of Sterling's who eventually told us that she had been contacted by Sterling and another individual who directed her to take the vehicle back up to Massachusetts. Right. So at that point, the immediate trail went cold and we had to start looking at Sterling himself. So typically when we get these fugitive cases, when they're delegated to us, we look at his criminal history. We look at his AKAs. Uh, did he purchase those IDs? Uh, are those IDs still being used? Do the, do the people know that he stole those identities? What was the first name that he used in his first arrest? Um, I had a TFO partner of mine teach me that, um, you know, when I actually first started working warrants. If you have a career criminal, look at the first time he was arrested mm -hmm. and look at the name that he used on his first time, right? Um, and then look at his last arrest and then, you know, you have a multitude of uh, AKAs. Uh, mm -hmm. We want to look at who visited him in jail, who bailed him out. We have enormous amount of databases and then we're obviously in the digital age where, you know, whether it's a cell phone, social media, you have your digital footprint and those are things that we look to exploit. Mm -hmm. um, they're extensions of us by nature. 
you know, your friend section on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it is. These are all um, your family tree. These are all patterns of life. Right. Um, but, you know, the and, pattern... And, and people don't usually separate from their pattern of life? Well, um, obviously, in the fugitive game, uh, fugitive investigations, uh, you want to identify the pattern of life. In this case, his pattern of life, I would say, was uh, disrupted because, you know, he shot, he tried to kill a uniformed uh, state trooper that was doing his job, and obviously uh, that is, uh, you know, amplified on the media, it's amplified on the news, it's on your cell phone, there's billboards out there. Mm -hmm. So clearly what he was doing prior to that, it's disrupted his pattern of life, wh whatever that was. Uh -huh. So we want to find the new pattern of life and then obviously um, disrupt that pattern of life mm -hmm. with an arrest attempt, right. right? So when we do that, it's a fugitive investigation. Um, you know, it's adult hide-and-seek. So basically, we're trying to find him, and when we do that, we look at everything. We put it under a microscope. We, we look at uh, basically, you know, what's the weakest link? Is there someone there that we can speak to? Is there, you know, someone there? Is, is there some type of technology that we can exploit? So these are all the things that we're looking at. Mm -hmm. You know, as far as the identification aspect, in this case, this is an attempted murder of a state police officer. That's already been done, right? We have we don't have anything to do with the ID. Right. Um, the case at that point is delegated to us. We have a warrant signed by a judge uh, demanding his arrest, an accusatory instrument, and this is the legal uh, lawyer fancy term for it. Right. And then from there, um, you know, the hunt is on. We're back to number five. You've been looking at the patterns of life. So what the pattern led us to, the first most obvious one was the female associate who was caught in the vehicle that we knew he had operated from Massachusetts to New York. She, in turn, led us to multiple associates of Sterling's in the New York area. Uh, we ended up with an address in Mount Vernon. We ended up with an address in Queens. And we ended up with an address in the Bronx, all of which looked promising. Uh, so then digging deep into those addresses, we determined that there wasn't anything really that lit up one address precluding all the others. Mm -hmm. So the decision was made that we were just going to have to hit all of them simultaneously. We, it, we can't hit an address in Mount Vernon and then go to the Bronx and then go to Queens. The speed at which people can communicate now, that's, there was no point to that. Right. And since you're looking for a homicide, an attempted homicide suspect, a guy who obviously has no problem shooting at the police, every one of these enforcement operations needs to be treated it needs to be organized like the Normandy invasion. You need to send 10 or 12 people to each of these addresses. So right now you're talking about close to 30, 40 investigators all working one case. It's a lot of people to coordinate. It's a lot of people to communicate with. Information is going to be changing constantly. New information is going to be coming in. It has to be put out to everybody. It becomes a huge logistical undertaking. Okay. It turns out that he's not there. And this is for any fugitive case. It turns into you know a field interview, you know. So maybe you want to take your guy who's great at rappelling off of a helicopter with every type of tactical equipment and replace him with your guy that can um, you know talk, uh, you know, and, and humanize himself with the people there to try to get you to find your fugitive. Mm -hmm. The address that we finally settled on, which had a slight edge over the others, was 4085 Eli Avenue, apartment 1R in the Bronx. Okay. All right. So let's talk about Eli Avenue. What happens on the day? It was a 5 a.m. tack, which means uh, 
which means you don't just show up at 5 a.m. and get ready. You show up, if you're running the case, you show up at about 3.30, 4 a.m. <laughs> okay. And start putting this thing together. Because this was, even for what we do, ordinarily, I mean, when we do tactical training, we throw out a question to, to the group, what's the best number of people to hit a place with? Mm -hmm. And people who haven't done it a lot say, oh, as many as possible. If you could get 100 people, you'd do that. Which sounds like the right answer until you start trying to organize it. So for this, we wound up with 34 people out there that day. 34 people to hit one address that's, I mean, it, this is Bronx real estate. This is not, you know, if that apartment was 500 square feet, I'd be surprised to hear that. This was not a huge place, but we had a huge number of people for it. And, and, you, and you had some stadies down from Massachusetts. Investigators came down from Massachusetts. People from the Massachusetts task force came down. People from various specialized units in the Marshall Service came down. NYPD, obviously, and I mean NYPD units not affiliated with the task force. We had their emergency services unit on standby. It becomes, it's really the great strength of the task force that you can pull all these disparate elements together basically at the drop of a hat. Mm -hmm. But then it becomes a huge number of moving pieces that you have to get on the board and utilize effectively. I mean, in the Marine Corps, you get 34 people, they call it a platoon. They give you a lieutenant and two sergeants to run it. Right. And with us, it's a bunch of cops who are used to running their own stuff that you have to try to herd into some kind of cohesive element. I mean, we tried to organize this podcast this morning with seven people. <laughs> and, and, it was, and it was trying to convince kittens to all get into the same box at the same time. So with 34 type A personalities, I mean, we all know what the A stands for. And so it was a lot to juggle and a lot to manage. Okay. So we meet early. Right. You find a uh, – the first trick is to find a parking lot big enough to accommodate all the vehicles. Right. Because you have, if you have 34 people, somehow they're going to show up in 40 vehicles. Right. And <laughs> it's like organizing parking at the county fair. Right. Then getting people together, making sure everybody knows who we're looking for, why we're looking for them, what the person's background is, the extraordinary level of danger presented by Andre K. Sterling and making sure that everybody's ready for that. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Now, number two and number 10, you almost didn't make this operation. Number two, you were enjoying a little vacation time. You haven't been at work much. Yeah. <laughs> I was off for the past two weeks. I was working on my house. I was like tearing it apart, tearing the, the floor. You know, when, when you're in work mode, you don't take care of yourself at all. Uh, no shaving, nothing like that. <laughs> well, by it's the way, speak for yourself. Gain, I, gain, I, mean, I think other people... Personal hygiene is maybe more important than I other mean, people. You do but take a shower every day, okay. but as far as like, <laughs> you know, you know shaving and all that stuff, you know, <laughs> man, you just don't care. Um, so, <laughs> so, 
So, you know, it, I got a phone call from my team leader. And um, so we usually, me and him, we usually talk every day. And he's, you know, asking, hey, what's going on for tomorrow on Friday? He's like, hey, you know, we have a heavy hitter, which is, you know, somebody that shot a cop or something like that. That's what we call mm-hmm. it. Like, yeah. So I was like, so I was like, you know what? I, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up. I'm going to go hang out with you guys. Once we're done with the hit, I'll hang out with you guys. I haven't seen you guys in a while. In my case, turns out my car was broken into that morning. Mm-hmm. So I reached out to number one. I said, listen, I don't know if I'll be able to make it. And when I heard his voice. I, I gave a kind of a little bit of a pause, and I was like, well, is there any way you could still come? Because we really need you. So, all right, let's get back to the tack. Everybody is showing up. This is a huge number of people. Everybody's making fun of one another. Um, the first one I went on, I happened to wear a brightly colored shirt, and someone said, oh, at least we know who's going to get shot first. <laughs> <laughs> and that was very appreciated because number one could have told me to wear a dark shirt the following day, but he chose not to. So It's a phrase of endearment, <laughs> not a term, but a phrase. <laughs> I don't know, you, you see a lot of black and blue and gray going yes, around. Yes, I noticed so when I was like in, in a turquoise, bright turquoise yeah. shirt... Uh, that I was standing out, and fortunately, uh, I did convince number one to lend me a black shirt. Uh, and I'm sorry, just to add to that, I, th- I think this is a right-fitting moment in terms of the joking and just to put it in context. So with us in fugitive enforcement, which, again, this is just my opinion, um, it, it's the most dangerous thing that you can do, arresting someone that doesn't want to be found, arresting someone that doesn't want to be um, arrested, right? So we try to bring that temperature down by telling jokes and there was a lot of funny jokes that day um before and after and during during and during you need that levity yeah you need the levity you need the camaraderie and and you know what you're walking into and you you knew it was a double enforcement operation and you're like all right so from what everybody said tensions were tensions were high as number two said this was a heavy hitter so everybody's arriving at the meet. Number three, you... Number five, pull me aside. He says, do you mind coming with me to the location? Let's see how it's laid out. Let's see the front door. There are a couple get... different ways to assess a place, like, uh, yeah. like number three has said. You're looking for fire escape. What are the windows face? Is there a fence around the place? Is it going to be difficult getting to the back? I remember thinking, because we're not the neighborhood demographic, so the concern is that... We're going to heat the block up, and we're going to blow this thing. But the alternative is not seeing the place and improvising when you get there. And I remember as walking, I remember thinking, wouldn't it be funny if Sterling walked out the door right now? Wouldn't that be be funny? And then I remember, no, that wouldn't be funny at all. That would be be absolutely the worst possible thing that could happen. But I had worked with number three before, uh, dealing with uh, what we call EDPs, emotionally disturbed persons, people who are just mentally interesting. (laughs) <laughs> and I felt confident having him there with me. It uh-huh. was part of the reason that when I saw him, I said, let's just do a quick run past the place and just get eyes on it. So we go back to the tack meat spot, and number five says, grab another deputy to go with you to the location and sit outside. Dress down. If Sternly walks out, follow him on foot. Look as discreet as you can. Don't wear anything bulky. Um but maintain your distance, call it over the radio, text, anything you can let us know. Because we had this real concern about we're going to be standing here organizing the platoon, which is going to take longer than usual. And meanwhile, Andre Sterling is going to get up, have his coffee, pack his lunch, walk out the door, and just be gone. And we're going to miss him 
by a minute, mm-hmm. which has happened before. It, it yes. happens not constantly, but it happens mm-hmm. enough to be a concern. And let's mitigate that. And the the trade off to that is you got to put two canaries in the coal mine. Basically, you got to mm-hmm. take two guys and say just just be the eyes and be the uh, be the early warning system. You know, Andre Sterling had been confronted by one police officer before. Right. In Cape Cod. And we saw how that turned out. Right. So is that going to happen again? That could effortlessly happen again. Mm-hmm. It's all a trade-off. It's all what can we – it's uh, It's the kind of decision that, that sits with you. Like what am I going to say afterwards if – you know, what do you say to somebody's significant other that, you know, hey, we, we really needed eyes on the place. We uh, – how do you how do you comfort somebody with that? You know, Jesus, if if it's any consolation, hey, what happened to your loved one? It was really, it was statistically unlikely. So you know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't. Uh, handing people folded flags sucks, mm-hmm. but it needed to be done, and um, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. So I grabbed uh, another deputy. I said, "Leave your car here." We park diagonally across from the house. And how many people are, I mean, this is what, at 4 a.m., 5 a.m.? It's probably 4.20, 4.30 a.m. And how many people are active on the street? Uh, there's some street walkers, you know, people right. walking up and down the block. Um, New York City never sleeps. New York City never That's sleeps. That's legitimate when they say that. About half an hour passed by, then on the radio says, we're on our way to your location. At that time, me and the other deputy in the car got out. We went to the front door. We got through the front door. We propped to the second door. At that time, we're propping up the second door. The whole team formation fold uh, fell into place. So number five, what are your thoughts in how you're going to approach the house? You Basically, there are two primary elements. You have entry and perimeter. Perimeter is people who are responsible for anything that comes out of the house or anything that happens outside the target location. Okay. And then entry is whoever's going in. Like we said before, we had enough people to film an episode of whatever a popular TV show is now among these young people. So I wasn't worried about the perimeter. And then the entry was primarily composed of an element in the task force we call the Bronx team. I used to work with them. Um, I was moved to a different unit, so obviously their performance improved exponentially after that. (laughs) So I knew that as an entry element, these guys were uh, these guys were the best. All right, let's take a second to discuss that formation known as the stack. It's something we've seen in every television show and every film ever made since the beginning of time. It's that line of people, one right behind the other, that we see when law enforcement or the military are ready to go into a residence. Why is the stack so great, and why do you still use it? It works. It's it, well. It's okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Next, <laughs> the stack is essentially an attempt to impose order on chaos because the alternative is a mob. The alternative is the plan from Ghostbusters. Get him. Which <laughs> okay. So up front is going to be your ballistic shield. Not only is it protection, but it's identification. It's basically a big billboard that says police. Right next to that is going to be what we call the long gun, which is an investigator armed with a rifle who is going to work in tandem with the shield. We like Mm -hmm. the long gun because it defeats body armor because of its devastating capability, which gets overlooked in movies. A rifle fired just indoors 
is like a concussion grenade. And then the effects it has on living tissue is devastating. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most powerful man portable weapon systems we have. In many ways, it's more effective than the shotgun. After that, you have people falling in, your communications officer, your team leader, your contact and cover officers, and then your breacher and your breacher cover. So that's and the, the breacher way. breacher has? Breacher uses a tool. It's what you see in movies. People, they'll use rams. It'll be the guy who kicks the door. It'll be the guy who takes what's called a halligan tool, which is like a crowbar on steroids and takes the door. And now we're using a tool called the Agora, which opens doors like beer cans. It's basically the jaws of life in reverse. It tears fortified doors open like they're not and there. And quietly. So we're at the apartment. We have how many people outside around the perimeter? 25. We have an entry stack of 10 investigators. Okay. Up front is our shield and our long gun, which we, we refer to as number one and number two. And everybody has numbers today for that reason. The numbers you hear us talk about correspond to the order in which people went into the apartment. And we're going to take you there. Every case is dangerous, but when you have a police-involved shooting, you know the potential of violence is even greater. Right. And then you choose to still be in the stack mm -hmm. because you want to end the reign of terror that this person is on. Mm -hmm. And um, so when you think about the mentality, it's bravery and responsibility um, and most, most of the time it equals success. So we're coming together in a, in a long, narrow hallway. This is almost routine because you guys go after people who are wanted for homicides weekly. Yes, yeah, so we're getting ready to make entry. Uh, typically, we, we knock, right? We're, we're not doing a, uh, a narcotic search warrant. We're uh, arresting a fugitive. So we want to knock and announce. That's very important. Mm -hmm. Another team member knocks on the door. Uh, typically, we, we like to call that a soft knock. Just sometimes it's, you know, two fingers. Sometimes it's uh, the edge of your knuckles. We want to engage the door. We want to knock on that door and establish um, proof of life inside of the residence. Mm -hmm. Right? It's very important. Um, and then there's other assets that we have to help us gain that proof of life. Mm -hmm. uh, sensitive techniques that we use to make sure that there is a human being on the other side of that door. Right. So we did a soft knock that day. Um, it was just a, a couple of knocks, right, number two? Yeah, yeah, just a, just a couple. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and, and I'm on that door, and again, this is really small and confined, and number two is connected next to me, as, as, as typically the way that it is with number one and two. So we did a soft knock, the door opens, and uh, as number five was explaining um, on the background of the case, there was an associate. Uh, his name was Granderson. He was the head of the household, right, number five? And more importantly, we knew what he looked like. Right. So we had a photograph of Granderson. He had a previous criminal history. Uh, it was connect. It was a hundred percent connection to the fugitive Andre Sterling. So we knew we were going to encounter, uh, you know, Granderson at least. And we had already established that Granderson was not only an associate of the fugitive, but he was um, helping him. This was not a casual acquaintance. This was not somebody that Sterling maybe reached out to. We knew that this person and Sterling were very, very close. Door opens. It's Granderson. And, I'm, uh, and you know, it's police, NYPD, U.S. Marshals. Go back, back. And at this point, he's compliant. Mm -hmm. He's listening uh, to our commands, to my commands, right. to go back. I, I asked him. I was like, who else is in here, right? You know, you guys can, 
you know, all elaborate on this, how many times we'll knock on the door and someone comes up to the door and they're like, oh, I don't know where he is. And then it's like the, the wink and the gun, right? And then it's like they're, they're pointing to the apartment. You know, I don't know where he is. They're getting down on their knees and they're like pointing to the room, like, <laughs> right. like you know, or they're whispering, he's in this room over here. Yeah. We didn't get that here yeah. today, right? Yeah, actually, it was like not today, no. that day. I yeah, remember okay. seeing him like giving yeah. this kind of an attitude. He angry. Yeah, he had an attitude. There he, was an anger was, of like, yeah. and a man and, who was under duress, a man who had been forced by his associate who tried to kill a cop a week and a half earlier, he could have stepped out. Right. Thank God, I'm saved. The police are here. Right. Go, go, go. Right. He did none of that. Right. This was not a bystander. Mm-hmm. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. So he lures you in. When we went in, number one, it, again, talking about how small the apartment is, we have to we have to take over the apartment right away. So we didn't have time, number one, number two, myself, didn't have time to actually stay there and interview him. We had to, like, go over him mm-hmm. right and away. Dominate, and Dominate take, the situation. Dominate the room, which was in front of us, which we did right away. Dominate meaning we have to cover... Our, our, our corners in there, our open spaces. So three and four follow close behind. Number five, where do you go? Off to the side, there was a narrow galley kitchen. Nobody was addressing that, so I dumped into that. Okay. And I'm looking at that because we have found people in cabinets. We have found people in refrigerators. We've found people in ovens. If somebody doesn't Washing want to machines. go back, yes, if somebody doesn't want to go back, they will be so astonishingly inventive uh-huh. with finding places to hide themselves. And this was a guy who obviously doesn't want to go back, who maybe he heard 34 car doors slamming out front at 5 a.m. and realized that that doesn't mean his neighbors are having a, a barbecue. It means right. the police are here and it's on. He may have had all the time in the world to try to conceal himself someplace. Right. I remember me turning to my left and looking to my three and my four and saying to them, clear 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 the rooms behind me clear the the rooms behind me so you me. passed to I unopened to. doors i had to because i had to stay with my number one i'm the last person in the apartment right i come in and the first thing i'm encountered with is the two deputies three and four coming out of the bathroom mm-hmm. my visual is i see granderson on the floor being questioned by another doosome where is there anybody else here is there anybody else here seconds later Right. S- seconds. I don't even know if it was like, it could have been milliseconds. So I should say as that, that as they walked into the apartment, there was a little bit of a hallway, and one and two passed two unopened doors, and three and four went to those doors and cleared both of those rooms to make sure no one was there. And then as they turned to the right from the hallway, it opens up into a living room. Yeah, we didn't yeah. even call it a living room, right? Because again, this this is it's important to know. This is really close quarters. It's a very very, very small room, right? So we have two doors in front of us, and Granderson has told you guys there's nobody here, right? Yeah, we have a door that is partially open, and then we have a door that's fully open, mm-hmm. right? So we're we're both calling it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
engage with the rest of the team, and everyone's finding work at yes. this moment. Yes. Um, I'm looking forward to the viewport of the shield. Uh, I have my helmet, obviously. The shield has a little... It's like a 4 by 10 viewpoint, right? Yeah, it, it's, an, it's a very small viewport, but enough to see, and we train with that. We shoot like that mm -hmm. with that shield, um, and then we're relaying what we see. Yeah. And in this case, are you, are you exposed in the living room? Yeah, we're definitely exposed. Um, I know I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Number two is definitely exposed Clearly. as the rifle as the rifle operator. So we're advancing, but both of these doors are next to each other. Right. Right. So we're advancing, uh, but we're advancing towards the partially closed door. Uh -huh. Right. And as we're getting to the closed door, the door opens, and I see him through the viewport. It was no doubt in my mind that this is the perp, uh, and, and this is where things slow down. And uh, again, this is not something where it, it, this is, uh, he's running from like a far distance. This is close quarters, you know, right up on the door, right? right? Door opens, and he's running into me, and I, I see a muzzle flash. <coughs> Yeah, so so, so I'm, I'm I'm being shot at at this point, right? Uh, um, I I don't. I, I I felt I felt something. Um, what on the shield? Yeah, I, uh -huh. I I felt something. Um, but again, now, this is uh this is where this is where the adrenaline not they they call it an adrenaline dump, but this is where the adrenaline um, uh, I guess uh. In infusion starts right so, so now this is on mm -hmm. right like uh, so so this is the perp he's on me he's 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 shooting and he's pushing okay and I'm already engaged with him and uh, what do you mean pushing you yeah he's 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 on top of me with mm -hmm. the shield and uh, I see him I, I, I feel something and mm -hmm. then um, I see a muzzle a muzzle flash and uh, in, in, uh, and I know I'm, I'm being shot. You know, we're, we're being shot. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. So I just started unloading. I started, uh, you know, engaging. engaging. I started firing as many rounds as I could. And then at that point, um, with him, with him, I felt pushing me, uh, which again you're connected towards me. And then physically pushing you. Physically, physically pushing, mm -hmm. shooting with that, sh uh, shooting, and I'm holding the shield. That's that's when I I fell to the ground. I know you. I knew you, number two, were behind me. Clearly, I don't know what's happening behind me, but you know, I, I remember, f you know, falling back. Mm -hmm. um, and what is it? What does it feel like when a round hits the shield? Well, I, I, I didn't know what what was going on. I, I felt uh -huh. something. Right. N not not a tremendous amount. Must shields typically don't endure rifle rounds. They cannot. Right. But rifle rounds, no. Yeah, but hand round. Uh, hand, Regular um, handguns, and when you say endure, means what is that? What does that mean? A rifle round will go through it like it's a t-shirt. A handgun, it's a handgun round won't bounce off it. It'll kind of be absorbed. Falling back, uh, you know, I, I, I had felt you next to me, you know, and then we we both fell. You I felt me, yeah. I, I did, yeah. Really, yeah. Mind you, Chris, this is new to me. That's why mm -hmm. I'm like. It's not new, but it's yeah. We don't talk it's, much it's, about it's, this. You, you. I, I mean, it's it's it it's we're saying that you haven't 
as a group gotten together no. and really sorted out no. the very details of this you're hearing it as they're hearing it. it this is like a little puzzle for me where everything's get put together uh-huh yeah so so you i felt right next to you no well i was i, I remember going back mm. i remember f falling back i'm not i don't remember exactly you know i, I felt we were separated that's that's when it was just um It was, uh, it, it, I, you know, I, 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 I thought, I thought you died at that point. You yeah. Know. Um, hmm. I thought you died. <coughs> I thought I was, I thought, I thought, uh, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was going to be there right with you. And, um, the amount of gun, you know, firepower, um, that was coming in our direction as well as, you know, in, in the other direction, uh, it, it, you know, I'd Yeah, you feel like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. remember that, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And then I, I was on the ground at that point and then, um, and I, mem I, I remember falling to the ground, I was hitting my head, the shield fell on top of me. You know, I still had the helmet on, but uh, yeah, it was. Did you still had a view by any chance of, of the situation, or the, or the shield fell on top of you and you couldn't see? Uh, I, 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 I couldn't see everything at yeah. that point. Um, and then I, I, you know, all the, all the all the rounds and all the shooting was, to me, it felt like it was like on top of me, like over me yeah, at that point. Uh, like it at felt that like point. that for me yeah. too. Yeah. When did you realize it was done? It, it was an eternity for me, you know. In, in again, in my perception, in my opinion, I, f I felt like uh, it wasn't ending. Mm -hmm. um, I started screaming un until at the very end, when I heard a voice, a, a loud voice. So number four yelled, "Cease fire! Cease fire!" What was going through your mind when when you heard "Cease fire"? I thought I was shot. Just again, I I. I it wasn't a foul smell. It wasn't like a foul odor, but uh, you know, I, I I felt the perp was on me, right? And mm. and it was like a distinct smell. I don't know if I want to get dramatic and call it, you know, death the death smell or you know. It's not dramatic. It's reality. Calling him, uh, you know, is that is this what evil smells like? Is uh, you know, is is this. Uh, you know, is this obia or, or, or you know? I think we all smell that. Yeah. I, I uh, appreciate you saying it because sulfur, you know, it, I, I, I felt crazy. <laughs> I felt crazy for a while thinking that I was the only one that smelled that because I didn't yeah. voice it to anybody. So weird. It's a weird smell. So it's it's yeah. nice to know. You can describe and it, and it. And it wasn't. And there's some military people here too. It it was not. And there's firearms experts here. It wasn't um, gunpowder. Gun You're right. About. It's mm -hmm. a different type of smell. Yep. And then I slowly started, because then when I stood up, and then I, you know, I started finding myself finding work again. Who shot? Uh, number three looked up at me. I remember him saying, you know, um, I'm shot. And then he's, he mentioned uh, number two's name and said, number two shot. <coughs> um, and then... Um, 
But did you check yourself before you did that? I, I, no? I, I didn't. didn't. I, I didn't. It, it was it was just like like I'm I'm standing up, and then that's because I I typically, at least how I've been taught, I, I try to carry two radios, mm-hmm. uh, and the reason for that is. You know, we we use NYPD radios or NYPD frequency where we talk on attack, which is like point to point. Right. But that point to point point to point is uh, atrocious. Where it only you know works like when we're like next to each other. Right. Um, yeah. And we've tried to get repeater channels for that, but for whatever reason that has failed. Um, so I keep the division precinct channel on, and. The reason for that is, you know, we, we call what's called as a 1013. And what's a 1013? Uh, 1013 is, you know, officer shot. Right. right? Uh, signal 13, 1013. Everybody and your mother. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Number two. Yeah. Being on the long gun, you're in the living room. Mm-hmm. And you're glued to the number one. And what was your perspective? Number one, again, he covered the room to the right, mm-hmm. and I covered the room to the left. Mm-hmm. And again, when I was covering it, um, I put the light in there. I had, you know, flashlight on my on my rifle, so I put the light on that room that was wide open. Put it in there, and all I remember is seeing somebody running <clears throat> really fast, somebody running with a, with a white shirt, mm-hmm. run, running towards us. Uh, mind you... Uh, it, I had so many cases where we get individuals that they come out of rooms running. Right. Um, <clears throat> we're not a hit squad. <clears throat> we're not assassins. We're law enforcement, so we always have to assess the situation. Right. And in my mind, I remember thinking, okay, um, he's running. And again, everything slows down. I mean, slow down completely. And this is me watching him running towards me and in a slow, slow motion. And I'm seeing powder right powder coming out while he's running towards me and i'm thinking okay uh, try and put two and two together and then i put two and two together when i felt the pain on my leg right i was like okay he's shooting at me then uh once i put those two together which was pain on my leg which was excruciating um in that in the powder the black powder coming from him Mm -hmm. running towards me Mm -hmm. I started engaging him mm-hmm. <clears throat> with my rifle. Again, everything slowed down, and I remember, I remember vividly, my um, trigger finger right. pulling the trigger twice. Right. I remember vividly, and I remember stopping. But when we, when you do a rifle, and you get um, stoppage or it just not shoot anymore. Right. It just, it just won't click anymore. I remember cursing that rifle, <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I just cleaned you. I just cleaned you last week. You're clean. The gun. The, you're the clean. rifle. Yes. It's clean. Because I'm saying you're clean. You're you're mm-hmm. you should be working. Mm-hmm. And I remember I, I I got so I was already pissed because of the that he shot me on the leg. And I remember thinking I was I was pissed at it and I remember just throwing the rifle on the floor. Well when I did that, I throw on the floor and then I immediately transitioned into my handgun. When I transitioned into my handgun uh, I remember it felt weird. Once I took my handgun out, it felt right. weird when I was holding it. Again, all this is in slow motion from the gecko, from the time that he got out out of the room. So I took it out. I start, you know, point, start looking for my target. Right. But I remember again thinking something doesn't feel right in my hand. Mm-hmm. Something doesn't feel right. So I remember looking at my hand, 
see my pinky like hanging and there was mm-hmm. blood in there. I was like, see my pinky hanging. And I remember, I remember thinking, oh, okay, this is why it feels weird. And, um, and I remember again, looking at my trigger finger and, you know, moving it in a motion like, okay, I can still use it to pull right. the trigger. I was like, okay, this one still works. But you didn't feel the shot. No, that, the only one that I felt right. out of all the ones that I, that I was hit is the, the leg one. That was the only one that I felt. But that one I didn't feel. So I remember, <clears throat> again, I remember looking at my hand and looking at my trigger finger. And I was like, okay, this one still works. We're still, we're still good to go. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was about to, I punched out and I was about to start picking him up. I had him on my side. Mm-hmm. I was about to pick him up again. And it was lights out. I remember it was lights out. Lights out for you. Lights out. I look at number six. Number six takes a bullet right by her face. Wall blows up. I'm getting knocked backwards, and all I see is the round, the round going by the side of my left side of my head. In in you talk about slow motion, like you could feel like the airwaves. You just see it going by the side of your head as you're going backwards, as the person in front of you is coming back on top of you, which was mm-hmm. my number two. Mm-hmm. And. And you have to make that decision of where, where you're going, what you're doing. And my decision at that moment was the only place, safe place for me, because I had no sight line to the fugitive, right. was to holster my weapon as I'm going backwards. There's no accident. Uh-huh. So one thing that the martial service teaches you and ingrains in you is like, hey, guys, there's going to be a point in time in your life where you're going to step over your brother, your sister. You're going to step over their lifeless body in a firefight. But you're going to know and understand and realize that whoever that person was to you, they're gone. And uh, I'll never forget the fact that I looked down on his lifeless body when he got shot, and uh, he took one to the chest, and he went limp, just limp. And I stepped over him, and I say, hey, number two's gone, in my mind. Right. And uh, I had to turn that emotion to, like, it's time to get into the firefight. Right, right, right. Let's go. You know. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The perp and I were exchanging rounds and... The uh, gentleman to my left ends up taking a round mm-hmm. to the leg. Mm-hmm. So when he ends up taking a round to the leg, he uh, inadvertently grabs me and drops me. Right. I thought at the time I got shot. Right. But I didn't know. Right. Because I just fell. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I kept returning rounds. Right. Uh, Sterling fell at my feet. When he fell at my feet, the last thing I remember him was pointing a weapon towards my team leader's face. Mm-hmm. So he was still His going. Glock. Right. He was still going. Right. And that's when I unloaded a round into his head. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget it. Mm-hmm. 
as I did that and I watched Round strike into his head, I watched his body go lifeless. I watched his finger go off the trigger. I, I yelled at the top of my voice, cease fire, cease fire, stop, stop, cease fire. And I remember it, it, it's so funny how we're trained, and I think uh, uh, number five can uh, put into that. We're training when we go to the range. We always train. Okay, whoever says cease fire, stop. everybody cease stops, fire. and stop it's like an fire. automatically thing that we have in our heads already. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I remember in the drop over down, everybody stopped. Mm-hmm. As soon as it says cease fire, cease fire, cease fire, everybody stopped. It was the <clears throat> eeriest feeling. It was quiet. It was very quiet. As yeah. we're recovering. Everybody's doing yeah. something. Everybody's finding work. Right, right. So my number one's yelling as he's picking up his shield. He's yelling. He's like, yo, we got to go. We still got unknowns. Right. Who's hit? That I probably remember. It was like, who's hit? And I right. remember raising my hand. I was like, I'm hit. I realized I got to get up. I couldn't get up. I looked down. And at that time, I had Andre Sterling, his dead body on top of me. So I'm pushing him all, off and pulling myself out. And then that's when I saw the hole in my leg, blood coming out. And I said, I'm hit. As they left, we hadn't cleared those last two rooms. And again, training kicked in. If I had designed the scenario, if I were trying to make this a teaching point, I would put another role player in one of those rooms with a gun to wait for people to turn their back and get distracted. And then the second person would come out and get a free lunch. So I'm like, so let's not let them do that. So I and another investigator posted up and covered those doors. And then we got more people in. We cleared the rest of the place. I grabbed number three by his soft little dinky vest and gra- and, and drag him out. And his vest breaks on the way out. Right. His vest breaks. Like the, the stra- I grabbed him by the shoulder strap, the left shoulder strap on the way out. Mm-hmm. And it broke. Mm-hmm. And then I, and he was like putting his gun away. And I'm like, no, you keep your gun out. Keep your gun out because we don't know what's going on down. We don't know what's happening. I said, you keep your gun out. So he kept his gun out, and I grabbed him by the collar of his shirt, and I kept dragging him back. Mm-hmm. And then I had asked number three, I said, where's your tourniquet? Where's your tourniquet? And he's like, I, I don't know. So I said, I said, screw it. I gave him my tourniquet, and then we put it. I got it on him, strapped it to his leg because it was his upper, his upper, upper left leg where he was shot. Got it on him. And then I went searching, as you, as he said, you know, searching for other. It's more of a let's see if we find any more holes. Right. We didn't find any more holes. So I was on the outside perimeter and I ran back in. I noticed um, number three standing on the staircase that went up uh-huh. in this um, residential building, and he was leaning there. But I saw the blood on his on his leg, and I said, "Are oh, you shot?" he said, yes. I said, let's go. He said, I can't get over them. So I leaned over them, um, and I said, get as close as you can, jump jump up. And he jumped over, jumped on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. And then that's when we turned, exited the uh, building as we were going down the stairs. Uh, you know, the stairs, you know, gave way. We uh, ended up against the wall. I pushed him forward. Um, other MOS were coming through the door. They aided him the rest of the way to the van. Another NYPD detective said to me when he noticed that I grabbed my my leg, um, are you okay? And I said, I think I broke my leg. And he said, "Um, uh, well, let's go to the hospital. And I said, well, let's go back inside first to see if the guy's okay. 
and as I attempted to, you know, the adrenaline is flowing, right, right, so sure. you think you can still go. So I'm, I'm attempting to go back inside, and then, I, you know, the training kicks in. If you can't be a help, don't be a hinder. Mm-hmm. So um, I went, and I said, it's time to go to the hospital. Right. So I remember just raising my hand, raising my hand. I was like, hey, I'm hit. I'm hit, guys. I'm hit. Um, as soon as I said that, I remember they, they yanked me right away. I was expecting <laughs> for them to, hey, come on. Let's get up, you know, come on, you know, let's, Sorry. let's hop out, let's, you know, let's, let's do, let's, you know, let's just walk out of here, you know? But no, it was yanked, like, very, uh, very violently, yanked me no, out. Number six looked at me and said, we gotta go. <laughs> and so, you guys, and you guys did. So you I, know when I, I make a demand, it's gotta be met. And you guys, and you guys did, so he so, felt. So, uh, I looked at you, and I was like, the fact that you're awake, you're alive, and you just said something. It felt violently. That's and why I yelled at you. I was like, "Yo, get your gun up." I don't. I don't remember you saying that to me. I remember instantly, and I don't know if you had to say that to me or not. I don't know if you did, but I remember me thinking, "I have to cover this guy." So I kept it on, on him, and I remember say going back to that, they yanked me violently, violently out of out of there. They were dragging me out, and he got to the point <clears throat> in the doorway of the. You got the stuck. entrance, I got, I was stuck in there. Right. My gun belt got stuck. Yeah. So they couldn't move me. So I remember telling them, I was like, hold on, stop, hold on. Let me do it myself. And, I, and that's when I found out I was shot on my left arm. Right. Because I tried to use it, and it, it just, it wasn't anything. It was like noodle there. That's all it was. Out of service. <clears throat> Out of service, completely. So then I was like, okay, I put my, I put my gun on the floor, and then I used my, my right hand to, to mm. pull, up, pull me up. So I did that, and they put me in the um, in the small hallway that we talked earlier. Uh, well, actually, they put me more towards right. Uh, right. The, the front entrance yeah. or the entrance of the building itself. And they started working on me. <clears throat> uh, I remember thinking, my first thought was uh, the medical training kicked in. I mean, I remember always some, some of the instructors that we had, one of the things that stuck to me is that you have to calm everybody. Right. Is is your best? Is in your best advantage to keep everybody calm? Because they were looking at you yes. like <clears throat> he. He's done. They, they, he's done. They, they've he's seen done. better days. If you're he's freaked out, better. everybody's gonna freak out. Right. Um. So that was my first thought. My first thought was like, okay, you know, calm the calm down. And my first thought is, you need to bring your heart rate down too, because you don't want to bleed out here. Right. I was like, bring it down. You know, talk talk softly. Just don't don't hype yourself. So that's when I started like <clears throat> instructing. I was like, "Hey, man, where I knew I was hit, which was on my, I saw hey, I got hit on my leg, my left leg. I got hit on my left arm. I, my right hand, is is hit, but don't worry about that. It's just hand. And um, and I say, yeah, I say, do what you got to do. And they started working on me. I remember they did, and they um, it got to a point that they. They pulled my pants down because they couldn't get to that. They needed to see it, of course. Right. <clears throat> so they pulled my pants down. And did you did you know that the wound on your leg hit an artery potentially? No. Uh, well, it got so. when it got to the point <laughs> when right. they pulled my pants down. Right. And uh, it got to a point that I saw the squirt on my leg, and mm-hmm. I remember thinking about that movie Black Hawk Down. There was a, a part in the black in the movie Black Hawk where mm-hmm. uh, a soldier gets shot on the leg. So I, like I said, I'm thinking. I'm going back in my mind. I'm going back mm-hmm. to that. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, he got my artery. I'm, I'm done because right. I saw the squirt. Right. And I saw his face too. I saw uh, number four's face. <laughs> right. <clears throat> like we, me and him, it, look at it, each it, other. It hit right. my face. 
I'm it, pulling his pants down and yeah. in my face. Me and yeah. him looked at each other. Like, oh, oh. This so the is blood comes out with not force. Good. Yes. It, so yeah. I uh, threw a tourniquet on his leg, and the tourniquet didn't work. Right. Because he's too too high up on the up on the leg. No. So the tourniquet. So the uh, the dial on the tourniquet when I was trying to. Uh, see the tourniquet on there. Uh-huh. There's like a like a little uh, screw on it. Right, right. And when I was trying to get it on it, and I, I was like, uh, I uh, jacked it up, and I, I was turning on it, it wasn't working. And I threw it across the room. Right. And I looked at you know my teammate, and he just looked at me. And he goes, "What now?" Like me and him, I thinking the same thing. Right. Pretty much. Th- this is right. this is very fatal. This is Black Hawk down. This is like we got twenty seconds or less. Right. And I looked at him and I told him I was like, "Hey, man, I'm sorry. This is gonna hurt." And I stuck my finger right into his leg. Couldn't find his exit hole. Stuck my finger right into his his groin. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you've met number six, her hands are bigger than me. Her whole. <laughs> <laughs> Beans bigger than me. And and uh Chris, I think my hands are bigger than yours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, as you know, you know, she made you feel yeah. small, right? So That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and she's smaller than both of us, right? And I and I looked at her and I said, Hey, get your fingers in that hole. Mm-hmm. And uh that's when I took my finger out of his groin. She uh, ended up plugging his finger and making a bigger hole inadvertently that I had to deal with afterwards because her man hands. Again, when she did that, uh, you know, they plugged me in. And all I remember, uh, another friend of mine that was there, too, uh, he picked (laughs) me up. broke your arm. (laughs) Yeah, he picked me up. When they they decided, it's like, okay, we're leaving now. Uh, He picked me up. They they carried me and picked me up from my left. And... uh, I remember I, I started screaming at him. I started arguing with him, cursing him out, because I thought he broke my arm. The doctor said, hey, if you don't get number two to the hospital within X amount of minutes, he's done. Right. So you carried him out. You got him. So we're carrying him out. It's December. I yelled at the RMP, the Radio Mounted Police right. Patrol, and I said, hey, turn the heater on, because I knew my partner's losing blood. Right. Shock and will kill you. The shock will kill you. 100%. Just the shock and blow. So I yelled at those NYPD guys and this it's it's 17 degrees outside. I'm in a, I'm in a t-shirt. He's naked pretty much because right. we cut all his clothes. Yeah. We cut everything off. And I was like, "Turn on the heater." As soon as we get into the back of the RMP, uh number 6 tries to jump in with me and I didn't, I, I didn't want to let go of the hole. Right. I I you had to yell me off of him. I mule kicked her. <laughs> when I mean I mule kicked her, think about a donkey kicking yeah, a person. Okay. I mule kicked her off of it and I say, "Hey, close that door. We're good." She closes the door. It's just uh number 2 and I. So he's bleeding out and and him and I are talking. We're we're having a good time. Mm-hmm. For what it for the the terrible situation sure. for what it is, we're having a good time, <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, he looks at me. He goes, "I don't know my wife's phone number. <laughs> Do you know her number?" And I said, "I don't even know your wife. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know my fiance's number." So right. like we're we're stuck in the same boat, right? And that's when he died on me. 
And when you say he died, he flatlined on me. Sternum rumbled him. Didn't wake up. Uh, stuck my finger back into his hole. His uh, tourniquets came loose, so I had to retighten his tourniquets. And this is what they driving erratically, like you know. We're driving right. over over a hundred miles an hour, right, in the streets, right, of New York City, in the Bronx, in the Bronx, in the Bronx it's- at five twenty in the morning. Yeah, and it, we got to get and we got to give it to the NYPD the because way they, they set they, up the route. Because right. and we have the audio for that. I yeah, mean, so they close all that the streets. That will be on the way. So there. you're in the car. He's he's died. He he flatlined on me. Right. Okay. I don't remember that. And course. you're trying and you're trying to revive him. A sternum rub which doesn't work. Which is to cause uh pain, some reset, it, yeah, uh, pain uh, stimulus. A, a ridiculous amount of pain right. to your chest that you would wake up. He didn't wake up. Um his eyes were open. I did not feel comfortable flicking his eyeball. Mm-hmm. So I punched him in the face. And when you say punched him like you mean I cold cocked him as hard as I could you don't hit I mean, that we hard we can give a demonstration but on <laughs> no, the no, podcast no, no. He, he, he really doesn't hit the hard because I don't remember having any pain <laughs> afterwards at all <laughs> there's no pain in my face at all there wasn't anything just so you know Hey, hey! I'm glad you say that now because when when it happened, you're like, "Hey, what does my face hurt?" <laughs> so he, you punch him in his heart as, as you can in his I face. I punch him in his face, and as... he and he wakes up. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Not only does he wake up, he wakes up laughing. And he says, hey, buddy, what's going on? Right. I say, hey, uh, number two, stay awake. We're almost there. And he tells me, he's like, hey, this is the longest ride I've ever had in my life. Right. So I yell at my counterparts, my uh, NYPD guys. I was like, yo, how far are we? He goes, hey, we're a block and a half away. Right. We're a block and a half away. And I and I yell at number two, and I was like, hey, dude, we're almost there. Just hang on. Right. And he says, yeah, no, no, no problem. We overshot. <laughs> the entrance, the entrance, because they were they were going over a hundred miles an hour. Right, right. That we overshot it. We almost flipped. We almost died getting there because right. when he died on me, I said something. Right. And uh, those two gentlemen that were driving. Right. Uh, one person was dealing with the sirens. The other guy was driving. Um, true professionals, and they barely had two years on, yeah. three years on. Rookies, wow, rookies, kids, mm-hmm. kids. Like wow. we look at them now. We got there, and I told number two, and I was like, "Hey, we're here." This kid opens the door uh-huh. to to drag me out, and my first thought was like, "If they drop me on that side, I'm gonna hurt too much." Right. Wow. I I I was angry. 
I was angry the whole time as it, as it is. I really was. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when I got there, I was still angry, of course. And I said, I saw this kid, this short, shovy kid, trying to pick me, trying trying to grab me, drag me out. Right. Hey, and like I said, the first thing I said to him, and I apologized to him after I saw him. <laughs> <laughs> I said to him, I said, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were a cop. I said, don't you drop me, you fat ML. Like, you know, <laughs> if you drop me, I ain't going to hurt you, this and that. Right. So, right. um I remember they put me in the stretcher. Once they put me in the stretcher, I mean, I, my first thought was, okay, I'm good to go. Right. And at first thought right. was, like, so, hey, if I ever passed out, they're going to bring me back. You spend how long in the hospital? Um, I arrived at the hospital Friday early morning, and I didn't leave until Tuesday afternoon. And how long did it take you to rehab <clears throat> to get back to work? A year, and I'm still and I'm still working through it. Really. The, the pain is is still there. It's not going to go away. Um, you know, um, I got limited movement on my left arm, the mm-hmm. one, the, the elbow. Mm-hmm. Um, the elbow was destroyed completely. They had to put it together. And I have 32 screws and five plates on my on my left arm. Oh. That's what I do. That's what I have right now. No one talks about the uh, the recovery process. The recovery process is very hard. Um, you know, this is not like in the movies that you get shot in the arm and, you know, you just go back to, to be normal the next day. No, it's, it was, it was very painful. It was a very painful process. Mm. To me, uh, the physical therapy was a lot. It was more painful than just getting shot. I mean, I would get shot anytime of the day than go to physical therapy. thousand percent. It's horrible. I hate it with passion. I hope that you... Number three, number 10, and number one all continue your physical recoveries. And we haven't even addressed the impact that this experience could have on your mental health. It's an incredible story. Thank you to everyone for letting our listeners into your world and your private thoughts. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for this. We're going to wrap it up with some final thoughts. And in lieu of our normal thank you, we have a very special dedication. Just say, I mean, I know we wrap it up, but uh, just one last word uh, that I always want to put out. It, it, it just to law enforcement people that are listening out there is just, um, you just gotta, you gotta keep fighting. And, and if you do encounter a situation where you get shot, um, just do, just remember that scene from uh, Dodgeball. Um, you know, you gotta get hard, you gotta get mean. <laughs> Dodge, duck, dip, dodge, duck, dip. To. You know what? Of all the movies that I thought might come up during this podcast, dodgeball wasn't one of them. You just have to. You really have to get 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 mean. You know, get angry. Uh, it, it will it will keep you alive. And just don't give up. Just because you got shot, you, you can still work. You can still do right. your job and defend yourself and just finish the job too. Andre Sterling was shot approximately ten to twelve times. Uh, I'm told. In this situation. After taking 10 to 12 rounds, and you've been in four-plus shootings, what is your experience, and what do you want to say about stopping the threat? My, my current partner, uh, who's, who's a NYPD detective here, and you know, I'm talking to him, I was, I was like, I, I remember engaging with him. You know, I, me- I remember uh, you know, letting rounds go. Um, and, and I and I know um, number two did as well. You know, I, I I felt it right. How come how come this perp just did not expire at that moment? And he said just one word: adrenaline, right? Um, and in just the same way, we have adrenaline going inside of a residence, 
so does perpetrators, right? And this was the ultimate gun battle. This was the ultimate adversary, armed adversary. You, you know, the, 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 the typical Hollywood, oh, why didn't you shoot him in the leg? You know, I, right. I, I used to, I watched all the lethal weapons. I, I love them. <laughs> I, I adore them. And I remember the scene, yes. um, you know, Briggs and uh, Murtaugh and, you know, oh, you really are crazy. Well, you know, and, and then uh, in the one scene where uh, Danny Glover tells Mel Gibson, he's like, I'm a good police. I try to shoot them in the leg. You know, I, I wish it was that simple, right? We all do. Like, you know, you shoot them. I mean, and we have other, um, you know, le less than lethal uh, gear and equipment that they give us, tasers and other assets that we have. But, you know, none of those things could have worked that day. The point of all the training we do, we've talked a lot about training today. The point of training is to take the extraordinary and make it routine. Make it so that people who find themselves in impossible circumstances, they don't have to waste time being shocked by it. They don't mm -hmm. have to waste time being baffled by what they should do and just treat it like, oh, I've been in situations like this before. I've been in 20 feet from where we're sitting, the task force has built a modular shoot house that we can reconfigure into rooms, into hallways, into doorways, into windows, into little houses, and run people through them and train them. We go in there, we fire off what are called simunition rounds, which are little bullets made of paint or blanks, just so people can be in enclosed circumstances with gunshots going off and with projectiles whizzing past them and in a, in a training environment so that out in the real world, when the balloon goes up, they don't have to, oh, this is something new. This is something I've never had any experience with. It can feel like, okay, this is like the shoot house. This is, and in the shoot house, I did this and this, and it worked out. I remember the day thinking, hearing that endless, that rolling, the gunfire that felt like it went on for about a year. I remember thinking, Jesus, that sounds just like Simran's. That sounds just like blanks. That sounds like mm -hmm. the way blanks ricochet off the walls. Okay, this feels like training. It feels like you put a scenario together and you're putting the class through it and they're getting to the last room and you know that's where the role player with the, with the blank firing gun is. So okay, in about five seconds I'm gonna hear boom, 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 then we're gonna call out a roll and that'll be that. And it felt like that, that level of calm. Mm -hmm. And watching all these people I've had the honor to work with and the honor to train, watch them do all that and react so perfectly as they'd been taught was extraordinary to me. One thing that really struck me was what was what you told me uh, that happened to you prior to uh, to the shooting. So um, I believe it was probably a year before, a few months before the shooting. Um, Officer a Anthony Dia was killed in line of duty. So his last radio communication was, "Tell my family I love them." You could Google his name and you could hear the audio clip. Um, I told my wife, I said, I don't want to go out like that. I said, you know, uh, you know, I love you every day. Um, but the way that the world's coming, I'm going to get shot. She's like, nah, don't, uh, don't talk like that. Don't say things like that. I said, it's bound to happen. I said, I know a lot of guys that got shot. A few that got killed. Um, a few that even committed suicide with all the things that, that went on. So for over a year, I was telling her, I'm going, you know, going to get shot. She's like, ah, no, you're not. I said, I got to write a note. I said, I got to write you something because I don't want to leave you in the wind. So probably about a few months before this incident happened, 
I sat down on my laptop, spent probably about three hours writing basically my end of watch letter to her um, and my daughter saying I love them. All of the participants in this episode would like to dedicate it to one of the NYPD's finest. He was there the day of the Andre Sterling shooting, but unfortunately is no longer with us. So that day, uh, there was another exceptional human being that was there. Uh, his name is uh, Sergeant SDS Cornelius Douglas uh, TFO, NYPD TFO. Um, sadly, he passed away on the day of his retirement party after giving uh, 36 years to the city of New York and uh, the United States as, as a TFO and also as a sergeant with the police department. He's, he was a legend, he was an icon, he was revered. He would be here with us. Um, sadly, he's not, but he's here in our memory. Because he fought um, through cancer. Yep, and, uh, and never complained once about it. He, he was just a good human being and we love him, we, we miss him, and as number 10 was talking about earlier, it, it, it really, I mean, I mean, this job, is, is, it's a calling, but it can be taxing on you, right? Particularly now in these times, and all you have is each other. So as number 10 was talking about, that was his sergeant, that was his partner for decades, and that's all you have leaving this job is the partnership, the brotherhood and the friendship with each other and the memories. Um, so we want to uh, thank you for giving us the opportunity to um, remember his name and his legacy. Um, yeah. He was, you know, he was uh, Dougie to all of us. He was uh, Cornelius J. Douglas to his wife Karen and his family. And um, he was a great cop, uh, even better sergeant in the uh, New York City Transit Police Department originally. And then when we merged departments in 1995, he became a sergeant. He was in, uh, involved in the shooting where we lost an, uh, um, a fellow MOS in the Bronx, New York, Kevin Gillespie. And um, he earned a combat cross in that. Um, he was involved in shootings while in the um, Warren Squad and he earned a combat cross in that. And um, more than anything else, he didn't speak of himself and all the accolades that were given to him um, uh, that he experienced. Um, he always spoke on his detectives' work that they did in the department, and um, he always wanted them acknowledged for, for it. All the way up until his last day, he wanted to see one of his teammates, um, one of the detectives he supervised, get promoted. Um, um, Dougie and I were together in uh, Transit District 3 when he became a brand new sergeant in 1993 and worked the midnights and uh, our careers, you know, crossed paths again after the merge. I went to the Bronx. He went to Bronx Warrants after his uh, involvement in the shooting. And then I became uh, a Warrant Squad detective. And uh, I went on a career, career path in 1999. In 2001, I got promoted. He was my sergeant from that day 
all the way up to his day of retirement. Um, under his tutelage, I was promoted three times. I reached the pinnacle of the NYPD detectives, first grade. And um, I was able to be here in the task force as a deputized member of the U.S. Marshal Service for 19 years. And he was my sergeant the whole time. So um, anything that I accomplished um, professionally and through um, friendship was integrity and respect that could be attributed to who was leading me. And that was um, Cornelius J. Douglas, Dougie. And finally, Chasing Evil is produced with the cooperation of the United States Marshal Service and contains interviews with current and retired employees as well as other persons. Opinions, positions, and views expressed by any of them may not reflect the official views, positions, or policies of the United States Marshal Service. Stay safe, everyone. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.